And hello, Recovery Fam. And it is uh, another episode of the Unashamed Recovery Podcast with the awesome and amazing Josh and Drew. That's Drew over there. Right here. And I'm Josh. (laughs) Uh, Here at the Unashamed Recovery Podcast, we believe that there is healing in the story of our scars and that it is okay to not be okay. It is our sole mission to break the shame and stigma of addiction and recovery by sharing real stories of real addiction from real people and real recovery and real sobriety. Um, So let's just go ahead and get this out of the way as we, uh, at the very beginning, uh, we will not have video companions to our episodes anymore. We may in future seasons, but as of right now, we're not. Uh, Our good friend, the Mad Russian, who was behind the scenes, and was taking care of us. Um, he has left the show. Uh, he had a lot of stuff going on with family and work, and he was couldn't really make that blend well. And so uh, he he has departed. We wish him well. We love him. Uh, but he was the mastermind behind the video. And without him, we're just going to tackle giving y'all the best audio that we can. So, with that <laughs> being said, today this episode should find you. At around the first of September, which means we've got one more episode after this, and we have our season finale. And as we break for our season finale, that will be in October. We usually come back in November, but this year we're not. We're going to take an extended break, and season four will launch in March of 2023. So, now all that's out of the way, <laughs> let's get on to it. Unashamed. The Recovery Podcast. <laughs> Today is not really a testimony, but we have a a guest here with us who is going to talk some awesome. I really don't know. If we, I don't think it's recovery. I well, mean, I mean I th- recovery. I, mean, I think it's, it's still it's, recovery. it's still recovery. It's, it's still recovery. pieces of recovery as far as like you know. Yeah. Um, digging a little bit deeper. Yeah. Uh, we, it's another side. I think we hit more of the surface level stuff, and this is kind of getting yeah. to the roots of some things. Most you know? definitely. So. Yeah. So uh, today's guest is a, uh, a speaker. She's the founder of the Mississippi Harm Reduction Initiative, and she is the director of outreach for End It For Good. And our guest today is Angela Mallet. And I said that right, Hello. correct? Hello. Yeah, you did. That's correct. For me, How about that? I got somebody's name right. I was Drew. about to say it. You, I was about to say it. At least she didn't call her Katie. <laughs> so, uh, with uh, with our guest today, we're getting another side of recovery for Mississippi. This is going to be a side that we don't get into a lot, but it goes back into our season one where we talked about different paths to recovery. This is another option, but. End it for good, Angela. Tell us a little bit about it. what what is end it for good up to? What what are y'all doing? Oh, well, we're just all over the place. So so this will be a recovery story. You know, awesome. We're gonna we're gonna talk about you know how how I ended up in recovery and why I do the work that I do today. Um, so end it for good is a Mississippi based nonprofit who works on educating and advocacy for changing the way that we respond to drugs in our communities. So we we travel all over the state. We work on advocacy at with the state capitol, um, trying to educate 
leaders, stakeholders, communities, parents, uh, and people in recovery on the harms that come from criminal approaches to people who use drugs. Hmm. You know, and and we can dive into that as much as you as much as you guys want to. Um, so if you if you zoom out like fifty thousand feet and kind of look down at this whole entire issue of drugs and all the policies surrounding them, um, you see that that a, almost all of the harms that come around come from drugs into communities, into our states, into our country, is because of the policies that we have. You know, everyone thinks we were all taught. We're we all look like we're about the same age, right? We're eighties babies. Yep, definitely. Yeah. So except we were for, we were for this young one right here, eighties <laughs> baby. How old are you, Josh? 80, 80, 89 does not count. 88. Right. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, he's a youngin'. I'm 34. <laughs> I, I still count. Still a baby. <laughs> Don't let the gray fool you. Uh, I'm, I'm young at heart. <laughs> so, you know, we're we're all products of this war on drugs. Dare. Just say no. Dare. Yeah. Yep. And, and we were taught that. All of the harms and bad things that happen if you use drugs is because of the substance itself. Like right. the substance is the demon, and and all of us sitting here at this table are had to reckon with that. Yep. Right? Was it the drugs that messed your life? Absolutely up? not. It was Drew? the trauma. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Josh, was it the well, was it the it's, behavior? It's interesting because mine is not drugs. Right. Yours is a, a behavioral yes. addiction. Yes. So I'm different. I'm the oddball because mine is more so habit. Like yeah. there wasn't trauma. Mine was just born out of necessity and opportunity and habit. But so, so if, if you dig into that though, and you know, I've heard your story a thousand times. <laughs> no, not it, my story. Yeah, oh yes. Oh yes. We've traveled <laughs> all over the all over the state listening to Josh's stories. No. But uh in a seriousness, I mean, if you think about it, yeah, yours does involve some trauma, but you don't realize it because I mean, it's been masked to make you feel like, you yeah. know, it's just a behavioral thing. Just kind of like, you know, with with drugs, everybody thinks it's just a substance thing. You know what I mean? But like if you really dig down into it, you know, you said your grandfather, you yeah. know, introduced you to porn. I mean, that's that's traumatic. Yeah. yeah. You know what I'm saying? We don't see it as traumatic because it's so culturally passive. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like trauma it, trauma is a the word trauma has such a like a, a serious connotation to yeah. it. Um I don't know if you guys knew Shane Gerard. Um Shane Gerard was the director of Fairland Treatment Center up in Clarksdale for many, many years and then he became the director of addiction service or behavioral and addiction services at Department of Mental Health. And then we lost Shane last year to cancer. Mm. But Shane is just a giant in recovery in our state. And, and Shane taught me a lot about trauma. And he used to tell me, he was like, let's not really call it trauma. Let's call it our belief systems, right? So your belief systems, whatever it is, whether it's about sex or it's about rejection or it's about fear or it's about relationships, your belief systems are set in childhood, and these experience that you, experiences that you have can skew them yep. and and make your coping skills maladaptive. So yeah. uh, it really all roots in some kind of trauma or some kind of core belief system that is established when we're really young. So, so who does that sound like? Amy? Yep. Oh, and some of we the stuff have a I've great episode you. that goes, <laughs> goes deeper into, into stuff. It's, called, it's the, actually the first 
episode of this season, which is Choice or Disease with Amy Brogan from oh, Jacob's I Well. To, I listened to some of it, not all That's of it. That's a, a really, yeah, she, she de- takes a deep dive. In. Anyway, we're getting. As far as, yeah, as, so far as belief systems, yeah. yeah. Yes. I can talk about trauma. Yeah. Y'all, I can have like a whole episode to talk about trauma. <laughs> but today, wow. we're talking about end it for good and, yes, and policy. So, so I want to ask right quick. Okay. Because I know people are going to want to know this. So y'all are a Mississippi-based nonprofit. Mm-hmm. What is End It For Good? Like, I, just for the viewers, what are y'all doing for the Mississippi recovery community? So we are actively working on um, educating communities on harm reduction harm reduction programs, um, but we're also advocating for safer laws for the people in recovery in Mississippi awesome. and fighting against harmful ones. Right. Yeah. You know, there, when you're, when you're working in advocacy, I, at first I thought like, oh, well, we're just going to advocate for bills that will help people, right? We're going to try to pass laws. We're going to try to advocate for additional funding, trying to get resources, for all kinds of things, for sober living, for more treatment, for yeah. naloxone, for fentanyl testing strips. But I learned, like, there's this whole other side to it. It's like, it's almost a full-time job just to just to fight against the bad stuff right. that people try to pass. Yeah. And, um, and so, so we do that, and and then we host, you know, lots of events. They end it for good. Allows me to really um, dive into grassroots organizing for people in recovery. Man, that's awesome. So, speaking on that, I you know already heard a, a secret that you were a graduate old Miss. Yeah, and, and you were uh, an engineer. Drew doesn't and, uh, like it, but y'all, he's and, still being nice to me, and, uh, so I'll as, take it. As Mississippi State fans, me and Drew were going and to. We're very, we're very hospitable. Mm-hmm. Still. But I also heard um, another secret. I heard that, uh, <laughs> that you were appointed on the governor's opioid task force. Is that correct? Well, I worked for the governor's opioid and heroin gotcha. task force. So the original. Well, partly. Uh, yeah, Close. the original. So this was 2017 okay. under Governor Phil Bryant, and he uh, assembled a, a the first opioid and heroin task force to to try to look at like what can we do yeah. uh, surrounding this opioid crisis. It was about 2016, 17 that that we started to see a huge spike in overdose deaths in Mississippi, and so this task force was put together. Well, simultaneously. Mississippi received the first opioid grant from SAMHSA, oh, okay. and so that allowed, that was uh, $7 million the first year, then 14, and then now we're on like year four, I think, um, and and it's just continuous funding that's coming down from the feds that it will help pay for medication for people, help pay for people to go to residential treatment for IOP, awesome. and, and also the state Narcan distribution program. So anyway... 2017, I was lucky enough to get hired as the outreach director for this opioid initiative. Yeah. And so the members of that that task force and myself, we spent about two years together traveling around the state, hosting town hall meetings in, in every major city in the state. We, we did one here in Meridian. We've done them all over the place. Awesome. That's awesome. So I, I, I worked for that task force. I wasn't on it. Got you. Well, let's backpedal because okay. I'm very, very curious as to know your story because I want to know how a, a engineer graduate from <clears throat> Ole Miss winds up 
as <laughs> a leading forefront of the recovery community for Mississippi. So let's backpedal. Okay. Let's take t- take us back. You know, give us a couple minutes of Angela's story. Like, yeah, yeah, that that engineer. Like, I'm I'm really want to know this one. This this one's got me me. All right, and so, wiggling in your seat a little yes. bit. Yeah. Yes, I'm I'm excited. There you go. All right, so let's take a ride. Yeah. Let's take a ride down to uh, South Mississippi on the Gulf Coast. I was born in a sleepy little coastal community uh, off of Fort Bayou in Jackson County, Mississippi. And uh, I grew up there, and all of my family was there. I had a really big really huge family and so lots of cousins lots of aunts and uncles and you know my parents I'm the oldest of three girls and um and then and now our family my mother and my stepfather uh there are six kids five girls and one brother um y'all can feel sorry for him later and uh you know and so I I had uh by all means and measures, a pretty normal childhood. You know, I was the oldest of my sisters, so I was around through my parents' divorce, and that was that was rocky a little bit. Um, but you know, I, I held it together, and uh, I was always a good student. I was academically inclined, always yeah. made straight A's. I learned very that early. Makes, I'm sorry, not when, don't mean to interrupt, but that makes like every guest that we've had. Every guest says every that. guest. <laughs> you know, because I mean, it was a masking tool. You yeah, know, to, it was. To, so that's the thing. To right? be as successful as you could. And remember, like, uh, I think we talked about it when I told my story about how uh, you try to be as successful as you can at your other part of life while the other part's failing tremendously. You know why? Because nobody's worried about the kid who's making straight A's on their report card and yep. winning science fair projects and. You know, yeah. being elected class president, nobody's looking at that kid right. going, what's hurting you? And uh, and so academic achievement was my coping skill from the time that I was seven, eight, uh, all the way up through college, you know, and that coping skill served me pretty well. So I got a scholarship to Ole Miss and that's, you know, so that focus on academic studies and overachieving at a young age served me pretty well. I went to Ole Miss, got a degree in civil engineering, and then I moved back to the coast and went to work for a private engineering firm. And my specialty was was highway and bridge design. And I loved doing it. It was... Uh, so please go into why yeah. you went into bridges. What? what? <laughs> we talked about this a little, just a tiny little bit before the show. So, I, I, so tell everybody, what tell was us. the... Uh, what was the uh, thing with the bridges? <laughs> you know, <clears throat> so a friend told me a few weeks ago, she, she was laughing with me, and she said, you know, Angela, it's almost like at a young age you heard God tell you that you needed to go build bridges, and you just took it literal. <laughs> you, went, you went running straight towards an engineering degree and said, okay, let me go build some bridges. And, you know, figured out the concrete and rebar and uh, <laughs> moment diagrams of how to actually build a structure. But that is not what I was supposed to be doing. And then today you're building bridges with End It For Good. So. Yes. Yes. Today <laughs> so. I'm building bridges uh, with End It For Good, but with just recovery people all over yes. Mississippi. Um, so, and, and Mississippi has some, some of the best 
recovery communities. Like me and Drew have been very fortunate to kind of circle the, yeah. the, the state and visit these different recovery groups. And Mississippi has some of the finest recovery communities that I've been a part of. So it's, so it's awesome. So anyway. I 1,000% agree. Yeah. It has been interesting yeah. to just kind of go across and be able to see like what each group does and, you know, the, yeah. the life that people have now, you know, it's just amazing to yep. see turnaround story after turnaround story, you know, so. We'll have to get you guys down to the coast. Come we'll down come, and, we'll and come. visit Didn't us down there. you just leave the coast? Yeah, I'm, I'm heading back to the coast too. Are you? Yep. So we'll we, we also come with our own band. So hey. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I, uh, yeah, so graduated college, moved back to the coast, and working. This was 2004 when I graduated from Ole Miss. In 2005, we had a little storm blow up. So just a little storm. Yeah. So yeah. Hur- Hurricane Katrina came in and blew up life as we knew it on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And so I got to be involved with a lot of rebuilding projects after that. And um, and that was great. I, I thought, you know, life is, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. So fast forward to uh, about five years later, and um, I was in a relationship and I got pregnant for the first time. And I was 29 years old. And I thought, Okay, so this is it. Now, let me pause here and say, because I haven't talked about drugs or alcohol, and they were very much a part of all of that story, mm, right. but never a problem. You know, I, I started drinking in high school to fit in, and I, I promise you I had my, my fair share of fun at Ole Miss. Um, and, you know, I went to Mexico with friends. We had a lot of fun down there, too, but never... Um, and there nothing ever developed into a problem. It was always just like, okay, that was fun. That was an experience. I, I got to go study, or I got to I got to work. I got a project to work on next week. So, up until that point, you know, I'm not one of those people who just like the first time they tried something and it was just this tragic yeah. situation. Um, but substance use, alcohol or drugs, was never a problem prior to this. So I was 29 and I got pregnant for the first time. And unfortunately, that pregnancy ended early, and they had to uh, remove the baby, and uh, I was prescribed pain medicine after that. And I, y'all, I just did not have the coping skills nor the understanding to deal with any of that. Right. All I knew is that I had just planned this whole future of becoming a mother, which is, which is what I've always wanted. You know, I, I went to college and got a good job and, you know, did all those things because I wanted a family one day. And I thought I was about to have it. Um, but that was not the plan that God had for me. But I did not have the skills to deal with any of it. I didn't know how to process grief. I didn't want to wrap my head around the fact that all my plans had just kind of come crushing down. And so I had a bottle of Oxycontin and, and I took it for a few days to numb the, you know, to get through the physical pain, but I kept taking it after that to numb a whole lot of emotional pain. Yeah. And so to me, I had, I turned 30 while I was pregnant. And so this is, I'm 30 now when this happens and I just did a nosedive into a bottle of pain pills, which consumed me you know, for the next six years of my life. 
And um, and so very quickly, you know, I hid it for a little while, but after I started IV use, I could not hide it anymore no. and really could not function. So I ended up losing my job, my home, you know, all the things. Started going in and out of jail, um, all the things that come along with problematic substance use. Right. So I want to ask you a question right quick. Okay. Um, at the beginning of season two, we had a lady come on, Shauna, and she had a prescription uh, was hers, hers was opiates, wasn't it? Yep. Anyway, uh, but she was doing prescription fraud because mm-hmm. of that. But anyway, when we posted that episode, I did some uh, some deep diving and some st- statistics, and I saw a thing that said that I think it was 88% of people who were in full-blown opioid addiction started from a legitimate prescription. How accurate is that? Is that is that is that probably more now, or is that less, or is that about right? Mm, I don't know. I'd have to check that. And so my heartburn with that is, um, it is too simplistic to just blame the prescription, mm, right? Right. It's too simplistic to just blame the doctor that wrote that prescription to to me, or to Shauna, or to anybody else, right? Because they write. They write prescriptions to people all the time. My dad has to take pain medicine for his his back, right? Uh, and he, he he's not problematically using it, uh, nor going to jail. Yeah. Um, it, so for those of us who do, it's those of us who have some deep pain yeah. that we're trying to mask. So that that statistic might be true, Josh. I'd have to go look it up. Um, but what well, what I was wanna, a. It was one of those social media things I saw. So, you you know, you can't take. So when I saw that, I was like, if that's true and if that's accurate, that's mind-blowing. But anyway, yeah. but yeah, that, that was that was one of those fact checkers had to check that one. Didn't block it out. No. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I was uh, arrested for two felony charges, grand larceny, false pretense. Um, one of them was dropped. And so I was court ordered to go to treatment. I went to treatment and um, then had a recurrence of use and went back after about 18 months. And I went back to treatment again. And I have been sober since then. It's almost let's see, the end of the year will be seven years. Awesome. 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 My and goodness. so uh, I the happy end to that story is that God finally gave me that little baby girl that I had always wanted. Uh, Stella was born, and she is seven years old. Awesome! And uh, and she's she's the real MVP. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so they say like you can't get sober for someone, right? We all hear that like, you can't get sober because somebody wants you to, or you can't do it to please someone. Um, so I I took that to heart, and I I thought about it a lot, and like I didn't get sober for Stella. I got sober because the most important thing to me. If I never do anything else on this earth, the most important thing to me is I want to be a good mother. And so yeah. I didn't do it for her. I did it for me because that's what's important to me. Yeah. So it changed your belief system is what it did. Yeah. There was a, there was a token, you know, to say the least, to you know, to change your belief system. So therefore you were emotionally involved at that point. So what happens, I think, a lot of times is people don't get emotionally involved in the recovery that they want. You know, it's like people who say, I want to go on a diet, mm-hmm. you know. Um, they'll diet for two weeks. Next thing you know, they're eating cake again because they're not emotionally involved. You know, they're not emotionally invested in it. You know, and that was something that gave you something to be emotionally invested in 
recovery. You know, Good stuff. and so now, you know, you've grown, you know, it's kind of like whenever we start reading the Bible, you know, you start being bottle fed and then all of a sudden you get to the meat of it. So I think you're you're eating the steaks right now because yeah. you're obviously that invested, you know, and that was the the catapult for it was your daughter. So that's amazing. That's beautiful, yeah. Drew. That's, Thank you. That's why I pay him the good money. So yeah, so were, was a part of your uh treatment quotation marks, was that drug court or was was not was that not drug court? Oh yeah, I'm a drug court graduate. And and I'm a fan of drug courts. I I think <clears throat> so I believe in harm reduction. Right. I, I believe in multiple pathways to recovery. I believe that the most important thing that we need to focus on is keeping people alive. And um, Okay, so I want to, you just hit on it, and I want to break this down because we have a lot of people who are not recovery-minded. Uh, we have a lot of people here, I did not know this, but we have a lot of people who listen who they're the parents of an addict. Oh, yeah. So for people who are not in the midst of this, what is harm reduction? Okay, so <laughs> if you Google harm reduction, you're going to see all, all kinds of stuff about it. But one of the primary definitions is it, of harm reduction is reducing the risk associated with any inherently dangerous activity. Right. Okay? So we do this in lots of areas of our lives, and we don't even really think about it. So let's think about cars. So the first cars that were invented and sold to consumers in the United States was in 1899. The first car was sold in Detroit, and it had kerosene headlights. Oh, jeez. No seatbelts. Nobody even knew what a blinker was or, <laughs> or like, how to even make one. Um, and, you know, it was just, like, the free-for-all right. with cars. But everybody wanted one because yeah. you could get places so much faster. Yeah. And so motor vehicle fatalities skyrocketed over the next decade across the country. And our government was like, whoa, these things are really dangerous. Right. But I I think this is here to stay with us. I don't know if there's any rolling back from this. So what are we going to do? So what happened was harm reduction responses to driving so the first uh, red light that was installed. So I'm an engineer, so this history stuff, like, <laughs> I geek out on it. Don't make fun of me. So the first red light that was installed was in the United States was in Cleveland, Ohio. If you're ever up there, you can go see it. Um, and then, you know, when I was pregnant with Stella, I, like, spent weeks researching what's the safest car seat. And we have right. red lights now. We have backup cameras, lane sensors, highways. Our design, like the majority of designing in a highway, um, is requires engineers like setting speed limits and setting ratios, lane width, lane bleh, lane widths, <laughs> uh, shoulder widths, the type of guardrails to put up. Right, all of those are protective factors to reduce the risk of this inherently dangerous activity of driving. Right, we practice harm reduction in the automobile yep. industry. We do it in the tobacco industry. Right, so. If you go like look up old advertisements for tobacco, you can have doctors. Doctors were pres- would, yeah, they was give their support for 
cigarettes. Yeah, they gave their support. Like the, these, the, most doctors smoke camels. Yeah, you know, right. I've seen that camel advertisement. Like yeah. women used to have babies, and they like push the baby out, and they're like, "Oh, here, have a cigarette. <laughs> It'll relax right. you." Like that's just crazy. Yeah. We would never do that now because we saw after decades that that tobacco products are really harmful. But instead of criminalizing people who want to use them, we have initiated as a country harm reduction responses. So now there's free cessation clinics, there's patches, there's e-cigarettes, there's all kinds of less harmful ways for people who choose to use tobacco products and you're not criminalized for it. So let's, let's look at alcohol. Alcohol consumption uh, is out there. It is also can be really deadly and is one of the main factors of, of, of lots of issues, domestic issues, personal issues, fatality issues in our country. But we also have a harm reduction response to alcohol. We have age restrictions on it. We have rules that say, you know, you can't, if you're going to drink alcohol, you can't drive. And um, we have labeling on it to say, like, this is how potent potent it is. So we can take that same philosophy and apply it to substances you know, if you if you zoom all the way out, so you, you, if you're talking about drugs, you got to ask where the harm's coming from. When we talk about drugs and this war on drugs that the United States and the really the rest of the world has followed our lead, um, if you look at war on drugs and ask where the harm's coming from, most of us are taught because we're '80s babies that. That all the harm comes from this one category of harms from drugs, like the right. substances themselves. And that's not really true. So if you look at this whole other category of harm that comes from criminalizing drugs, you see that the vast majority of the harm that's happening in our country and in our state and in our cities today comes from criminalizing these substances. And let me explain to you why. All right. So this is a little bit of of economics 101, right? In any any place in the world where something is being traded, you have three components. Now that this you have the market, that's the person who's manufacturing and selling the product. Then you have the the commodity that's changing hands. And we're going to call that the substance and then you have the consumer. So you have market, substance, consumer. This is true if we're selling tomatoes or we're selling crack, right? right. So when you criminalize a market for a popular substance, you get some some harms that come along with that. So let's look at the market for drugs and what happens when you criminalize it. So we saw this example play out about 100 years ago during alcohol prohibition, right? So in 1920, the, the Volstead Act was passed and that, that brought in alcohol prohibition that said it's illegal to sell, manufacture alcohol anywhere in the United States. Almost immediately, literally within within a year, you saw the the alcohol market transfer from law-abiding businesses who'd once paid taxes and had quality control of this substance. It transferred underground because people didn't stop drinking. Right. Nobody wanted to quit drinking. Now they just got to buy it from a bootlegger. Right. So law-abiding businessmen close their doors. Al Capone and his buddies are making millions. Right. Right. And all the violence and, you know, bloody Sunday that happened in Chicago, all of that comes along with it. 
And so when you criminalize a market of a popular substance, you drive it underground and you get violence. So the violence we see today in our communities is because not all of it, but all drug-related violence is really there because we have driven these substances underground right. and people are fighting over them on their streets, on the streets. All right, so that's what happens to a market. Now let's talk about what happens to the actual substance itself. So again, I'm going to throw back to the 1920s during alcohol prohibition. When alcohol was outlawed, you went from having quality controlled alcohol that was made in a brewery or a distillery and had a label on it. You went from having that to having bootleg, right? And you don't know what's like, in which it. Which comes in from a free-for-all at yeah. that point. Yeah. Somebody, they cooked it up in the bathtub or out <laughs> in the woods and what, yeah. radiators. Or right. <laughs> I used to watch that show, Moonshiners. <laughs> That's the only reason I know that. Right. So, uh, so yeah. So you lose absolutely all quality control and you get contamination. Yeah. So let's, let's bring that forward to modern times. So... Today, we have an opioid crisis, right? And our response has followed the same drug war mentality of crack down, crack down, crack down. So in 2013, the FDA began cracking down on the number of opioid prescriptions that could be written in this country. And almost overnight, you see overdose deaths from fentanyl just go through the roof, right? And Mississippi has followed the same suit. So in 2017, the Mississippi Medical Licensure Board enacted policies here because they were following the direction of the federal government. The feds said limit number of prescriptions. So that's what what they did. And as you can look, I mean, I have it charted out on a graph. You can look that as we begin to crack down on legal, safe, regulated opioid supply, the underground market overdose deaths from illicit fentanyl just skyrocket. So in the past three years, overdose deaths from fentanyl in Mississippi has increased by 83%. While, that is insane. While prescription numbers are going down. Okay, right. So I'm telling you that because when you criminalize a substance, you drive it further underground and you lose, you lose quality control. So now it's contaminated. And it's more potent by things like fentanyl. Right. So when you so we criminalize the market, you get violence. You criminalize the substance, you get contamination, which is what fentanyl is. When you criminalize a consumer, let's talk about that. So when you respond to someone's substance use with incarceration, it starts this cycle. Okay. And whatever it looks like, when you respond with incarceration, it is going to create disconnection in that person's life. Now, whether that's disconnection from their children, their job, their home, whatever, disconnection happens. Now they have a criminal record. And that makes getting education, getting housing, getting employment really hard afterwards. All of those things are traumatic experiences. So now you've driven that person underground at that point. That's right. And Drew, what's the what's the number one risk factor for addiction in the first place? Trauma. Oh yeah, trauma. trauma. Definitely trauma. Right. So we've created this system by responding to people with the criminal justice system. We've created this cycle 
that exacerbates the trauma and just like keeps it going going. That's what I was about to say. So, I mean, now you've created a cycle of trauma because now you, when you cut people off like that, you know, and people don't get to see their kids, they don't mm-hmm. have their free will. They don't have the freedom to even just go use the bathroom without somebody telling them, yep. you know, now you've created an animalistic behavior. So people are going to go underground and become uh, wildlings. Let's call them that. Yeah. You know, they're, they're literally out in the woods just doing whatever yeah. just to get by because they, they can't, Society doesn't accept them anymore. And in a and, nutshell. Yeah. And so so all of these harms are coming from these systems and we haven't even <clears throat> talked about the inequality and the the way that this has impacted communities of color. Right? Because right now in the United States, like I don't remember the exact statistic. Oh, I think it's twelve. But I was unsure if it was 12 or 8, but with the same laws, but they are enforced differently. So let's, I think it's, it's marijuana laws. You can look at marijuana laws. Research shows that white men use, white men and black men use cannabis at the same rates, right? Okay. Right. Actually, white men are a little bit higher in usage, but if you look at the arrest rates and incarceration rates for or cannabis. There's an extreme difference. Yeah, there's an extreme difference. I, even, I can't remember if it's 12 or it's 8, not, so you need to go fact check me. <laughs> I'll text you afterwards and like tell the you the exact number. Is, yeah. it is, it is insane. People of color have felt the brunt of these drug laws in our country more than anyone else. Right, so, so when you zoom all the way out and you see that all of this harm is coming from criminalizing and all of the contamination from fentanyl, that's a product of prohibition. The harder we crack down on on legal, safer opioids, the more we drive people to an underground market where they're contaminated by fentanyl. Yeah. And, um, well, yeah, so I read an article, it's been a year ago, where there was another country, <clears throat> and don't quote me which country, because I can't remember. Portugal, yes. And yeah, you, know, yeah. you, you already know what I'm about to say. Yeah. <laughs> they decriminalized and overnight the addiction, I mean, it was it was basically just wiped out. Like it, there was no more. It didn't wipe it out, well, but it did okay. massively decrease yes. it. Yeah. Right. Okay, there. We need, we need to hire, hire her because she, she, she puts it way better than, <laughs> than, than I yeah. put it. Yeah, <laughs> so Portugal did this crazy yeah. thing, y'all. All right, in 2001, Portugal had a heroin addiction rate that was five times what the United States is right now. I mean, it was terrible. Like over 1% of their population was injecting heroin on a daily basis. And their prime minister and all of the leaders in Portugal were like, our economy cannot sustain this. We have to do something serious or we can't respond to it. We can't incarcerate enough people. Like our our healthcare system can't treat the sickness that is coming from this. Yeah. So they brought together a team of scientists, of addiction professionals, criminal justice professionals, and they were like, what are we going to do? And Portugal in 2001 took the most drastic step of any country in the world, and they decriminalized possession of all drugs. And so what that is is it is still illegal to manufacture. It's still illegal to traffic drugs. You can't just roll up in Portugal with a kilo of heroin. Right. <laughs> You're going to jail. <laughs> <laughs> but they they 
they decriminalized the possession. So of those three categories of harm we were talking about earlier, the market, the substance, the consumer, they addressed that third category of harm, and that's harms to people who are using drugs. Right. So in Portugal now, if you are in possession of a substance, any substance, you are not arrested. But if you choose, they, they offer it to anyone They say, okay, so we have this whole plethora of support services if you're ready for it. And in Portugal, you know, if you, you, they almost have on-demand treatment. You can get into treatment. You can get into um, a medication-assisted therapy clinic like methadone or buprenorphine or uh, I don't know if they're doing psychedelics in Portugal, but there's a whole array. They have assisted living. They have sober living. And what I think is really cool is they created this massive program of job expansion for people who are struggling with addiction. That's amazing. So yeah, it is amazing. So let's say let's say you used to be a welder, <clears throat> oh. right? And for whatever reason, life got hard for you. You developed a problem with opioids, and you need to go to treatment. So you go, right? Because in Portugal, you can access it really easily. You go and you get out. The government has a job incentive, so they will go to an employer and say, if you employ this guy for a year, we'll pay half his wages. Man. And so the purpose of this. Do you understand (laughs) how different that would be for, like, even just the state of Mississippi itself? You know, I mean. Man, that's huge. So the whole purpose of that was to make sure that people like us who have experienced some pain and addiction have something to wake up for in the morning and look forward to, to rebuild a life that you don't need to escape from anymore. And so it's worked in Portugal. It's been 20 years now and their injection drug use rates are down by 60%. Oh goodness. Their addiction rates are massively down. And also their crimes in the whole country, their crime rates are also massively down. Because if you think about it... Nobody's like, fighting over this stuff yeah, anymore. Yeah, nobody's fighting yeah. over it anymore. You're not having to steal and hide your addiction. Like, you no. can get help if you need it. So these property crimes that were related to drug use, they're all going down. Well, the fact of the matter is, I mean, when you look at it, nobody's having to, you know, steal for a way of living. They're right. not having to you know, take what somebody else has just to support themselves anymore. So, because now they have all these, the, the job incentives and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's amazing to me. That so, That's phenomenal. So what would it take to get that here in the United States, or let's bring it more closer on, what would it like to bring that to Mississippi? What would it take? Well. Because that right there is a, that's a case study mm-hmm. for, how it works. Like it, it, it works. It worked. Yeah. So it's yeah. been 20 years. Or, excuse me. Portugal did a referendum where they they asked the entire country to vote. They did it in 2016. And they said, okay, do you want to go back to the old way of criminalizing drug use? And like 90% of the country said no. We right. like it the way that it is now. Yeah. Things are much better. So in the United States, what does that look like? Um, so Oregon just did it. Oregon in 2020. So the COVID consuming our lives kind of covered up this, but uh, the state of Oregon decriminalized drugs in 2020, and they are now going to... So what I did not mention about Portugal, and, and let me throw it in here, this only worked, decriminalization only worked in Portugal because they shifted their 
budgets. So in Portugal, they spend of all of their drug intervention dollars, okay? So when I say drug intervention dollars, I mean everything under the umbrella of treatment, uh, incarceration, border patrol, prosecution, all that stuff is drug intervention dollars. In Portugal, they spend 90% of it on prevention and treatment, and they spend 10% on enforcement. So in the United States today, we do the exact opposite. Yep. Of all the taxpayer dollars that go towards drug intervention, we spend 90% of it on enforcement. Yep. And building more prisons. Prisons. Trying to lock more people away. Border patrol, all the stuff, Coast Guard, all that stuff. And treatment, you know, treatment and prevention in the United States only gets 10% of that. Right. So just that should be upside down the other way. I you agree know. with you. So just imagine what it would look like if it's just 50-50. Yeah, 50-50 you know? would. Because, I mean, I, it almost didn't even sound like a war on drugs over here. It more sounds like a war on people. <sighs> you know what I'm saying? That's what it really sounds like to me. Yeah. You know, when you really kind of, like, take a step back. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm a victim of it, but, you know, I was a person that ended up incarcerated because of possession. Yeah. You know, um, granted, that was two years of my life just out of the, you know, out of the door. And when I look back now, I mean, if we if I'd have had something to look forward to whenever I got out, it would have been a lot different. You know, of course, this the, the last time I went in, of course, I had to change my mindset because I had, you know, the catalyst for something to to, to boost. And I was yeah. invested in my recovery because I had things that I wanted to do and I wanted to live differently. But, you yeah, know, you that's purpose. not. But, you know, everybody doesn't have that purpose. You know, everybody gets overwhelmed by the trauma. They don't have these these programs. You know, to to suffice them. You know, to sufficiently help them build a life anymore. You know, they're they're coming, they're coming mm-hmm. about, but at what rate? You know what I mean? Yeah. So 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 Oregon just did it. They are going to be shifting the way that they allocate their resources in Oregon um, to make treatment widely accessible for people. Fund recovery community organizations. Like they're doing all kinds of stuff. So it's new. We're, we're going to see, I think, Oregon had a COVID happen, right? So COVID yeah. just kind of derailed everything. Right. Um, but there there was a period of time in Oregon where um, they have to build these services out, right? So you can, yeah. we can go over to the Capitol right now and the governor could say, you know, here's X number of million dollars for treatment. Well, yeah. you've got to go build the treatment center, right? right? And you got to have the people to work the treatment right. facility. So Oregon, well, maybe if they Oregon stop is, building the prisons. Yeah, right. so Oregon's <laughs> building out their resources right now. And I think I think we're going to see everyone in the country is watching what's going to happen in Oregon over the next four or five years. So right. yeah. big policy changes like this, like decriminalization or legal regulation, um, we're decades away from that. To answer your original question, yeah. you said, "What's it? How, what's it going to take?" We're decades away from that happening. I think, I hope, and all of us that end it for good are going to be working with people all over the country and moving in that direction. Um, but what I want to know, Josh, is is how do we? How do I have? How do I stop going to funerals now in Mississippi? Yeah. Right. Yeah. How, that's what I want to know. How do? How do I have to? What do I have to do to stop burying my friends and the people that I love? Yeah, that's, and that's the that's the question. Ain't it? That's, yeah. Uh, so so we can wait yeah. around while while everybody watches Oregon and the people in D.C. fuss about it and fight about it and they get on Fox News and <laughs> we can wait around <laughs> on that. But I want to know how to stop going to funerals now. Right. And, and, and you know that was like when we did the choice or disease episode. You know, at the end, I closed it out with, "Hey, whatever side you're on." 
whether you think that addiction is choice or if it's disease, whatever choice you're on, while you're arguing about it, people are still dying mm-hmm. from addiction. Yeah. And so it doesn't, like, you you argue it doesn't hide the fact that we're losing all these people yeah. per year. And so I really don't even get into the conversation anymore about disease or choice. Right. I mean, I've heard great arguments for both. Uh, I mean, I know the DSM-5 says it's a, a disease, um, but I've heard great arguments for either. And like, honestly, that's not worth talking about to me. To it makes me, it, I mean, in it, the end, it makes it a little obsolete. Can we just all agree that it... There's a problem. It's not, it shouldn't be criminalized. Yeah. Whether, what addiction is, a choice or disease, I don't care. Can we all just agree that you shouldn't be criminalized for it? You should be helped. Yes. Like, we should do some serious trauma therapy. Right. That's what you need. You don't need to be sitting in jail. So, so what do we do right now while these big policy changes are coming to fruition in our country? Uh, And the right now, I believe the answer is harm reduction. And harm reduction can can look like a lot of things. So there are there are programs and harm reduction responses for people. So things like Narcan, right? Narcan can keep can keep people alive. Yes. In the area in the in the world of fentanyl that we have right now, whether you're a meth user, a cocaine user, or an opiate user, and that doesn't matter because fentanyl's in all of it. Right. Right. All people who are using drugs, like, you've got to have Narcan around. Parents, you've got to have it. If you don't have it, call me, and we will get it for you. The Department of Mental Health supplies it and to grant-funded organizations. They supply it to community mental health centers. Call me. We'll get it for you. Um, Fentanyl testing strips are really important. Fentanyl testing strips are just little slivers of paper. They're like... You know, ten cents yeah. a piece, and like you can test. Yeah, you yeah. can test if fentanyl is in the substance that you're about to consume, right? And that's for people who are like way far down the spectrum who are using every day. But it's also for these college kids at state who are like thinking they're getting an Adderall from their buddy, and really it's a pressed pill with fentanyl in it, like. I don't want people using drugs, but I don't want you to die either. And let's right. just be practical. Yeah. They're going to do it. So don't we want them but to be, be safe? Smart about so it, right? I want your opinion on this. <clears throat> this kind of goes into what we were just talking about. And we got to wrap it up because we're way over time frame. <laughs> man, I could go about this. But anyway, I've seen where clean, that might be the word, but anyway. Clean a, syringes? No, yeah. a clean use site. Oh, yeah, safe. Safe clean site or so, safe site? So some people call them safe injection sites or we might hear them called safe consumption sites. Yes, that's it. Because you can really use any substance there. It doesn't have to be just injected. Yeah, you know, if right. you smoke, whatever, you so, can use it there. With your stance on harm reduction, mm-hmm. where does that play in? Yeah, so safe consumption sites are, are a really powerful form of harm reduction. Um, they are, so I can tell you a stat, and, and you can, in fact, check this one because I know it. There are <laughs> 134 safe consumption sites in the world as of last year. Okay. Right? So places like Switzerland, the U.K., all over Canada, South America, they have safe consumption sites, safe injection sites. And in those 134 safe injection sites, there has yet to be one, not one, single fatal overdose. Man. So people don't die when they're Man. medically supervised. Right. That's so a, you, That's a 
So as a huge difference. Yeah. So there are two in the United States right now. There's a big, big court battle about one that tried to open in Philadelphia. Supreme Court ruled that they could. So there's one in Philadelphia, and then then there's also one in New York City. And there has yet to be a fatal over. You know, people have overdosed there, but they have medical staff there to revive them, so right. they don't they don't die. So, and I, I hear a lot of people uh, talking negatively about these sites, and I mm-hmm. think we have to shift our mindset from this uh, a moral failing slash criminalization. I mean, people go all the time and get drunk at a bar. Same and that thing. is a clean, it's safe environment for them, to, for them to do so. I think it's just people are caught up in tradition, and mm-hmm. we're still looking at this from a moral failing and a criminalization uh, aspect of it. So, okay, I, I wanted your, your take on that because yeah. this is something that's new. We're, we haven't seen that here in Mississippi no, yet. No, and I, I don't know that we will. No, I don't um, think so either. Not anytime soon, you know, yeah. and and that's okay. You know, harm reduction in Mississippi looks like we have wide, avail, widely available access to naloxone. We hope to be able to, to have it with fentanyl testing strips soon. Um, there's conversations about syringe exchange programs because syringe exchange programs widely decrease um communicable diseases like HIV and hepatitis. Um, And, you know, the purpose of programs like this, whether it's clean syringes or fentanyl testing strips, it's not not really about, I know for people who just hear this, they're like, oh my gosh, you're enabling their drug use? You're going to give somebody a syringe so they can keep shooting up? Like, well, they're going to do it anyway. So do you, do you want them to do it safely so they don't, get an infectious disease or a bloodborne disease, or do you want them to take the risk? Right. Um, <clears throat> but the, the purpose is, is not really the use. Like the purpose with programs like this is for a non-judgmental touch with someone who, who at every single time I'm giving you a, a dose of Narcan, every single time that you're coming to get a fentanyl testing strip. And if one day, if you we ever have syringe exchange programs like other states do, Every time a person comes to that, at any given time, they can say, hey, Josh, thank you for giving me these syringes, but today I'm done. Can you help me? And You're that's right. the moment we're waiting on, yeah. right? It's not about the giving them the supplies. It's that it's building enough trust with someone who's, you take somebody who's in the midst of active addiction. I don't know about you guys, but for me, when I was in it, the only thing that I carried around with me on a daily basis, nonstop, was shame. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yep. It was, it was my sad companion all the time, right? And so when I... Guilt rode with me sometimes, too. Yeah, guilt, guilt hung out a few times. <laughs> but guilt is just a stupid first cousin of shame. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, so people who are in the midst of active problematic drug use like that's their companion is shame and so when they can be when they can encounter someone who's going to be nice to them and not judge them for the struggle that they're going through right now they're far more likely to come back and say hey you know i'm done today can you can you help me right that's the magic of these kinds of program and programs and that's the magic of harm reduction so well because you're kind of building that relationship with that person and they, they know, hey, this is kind of the, a safe place. Mm-hmm. And they, they know that 
you know, that help is available when they're continuing to visit that place for that. So, well, we could sit here for another hour and we could talk more. And I know you probably have more that you can, that you would like to say. Uh, and who knows, we could, we would love to have you back on yes, season four. Definitely. Uh, we can do that. And <laughs> so, but with that, uh, for anybody out there who's listening, who may have a question, or maybe they want to get it with you about the Narcan, or maybe they want you to come and speak at their recovery group, or mm-hmm. we have a network of other recovery podcasts, and maybe they want to get you on their show. What is a good email for somebody to give you an email at? It is Angela at enditforgood.com. E-N-D-I-T-F-O-R-G-O-O-D.com. That is awesome. Or you can, I mean, you can hit me up on Facebook. Angela Mallet. I'm out there. I'm <laughs> <Facebook>, outside. <laughs> she is, she's out there. So, out there. guys, with that, that's all the time we've got for the day. We appreciate y'all listening and for your continued support of the show. If y'all have any questions for us, maybe you have some recommendations for a guest or a topic, or maybe you want to tell us how good or how bad we're doing, uh, either way, you can reach us at unashamedpodcast at yahoo.com. And that's not to be confused with Phil and Jace Robertson's podcast, Unashamed. We're Unashamed Recovery. So anyway, unashamedpodcast <laughs> at yahoo.com. Guys, until next time, we love y'all. And remember to be unashamed. Stay sober, guys. <laughs>